Hi, uh, we are Ron and Gloria, my wife Sikowski, and uh, we have been attending TCC for almost 11 months, and we're excited to be part of this awesome church. The scripture reading this morning is taken from 1 John 1, verses 1 to 4, and my wife is going to read that in English, and then I will read it in German. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we had seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We, we write this to make our joy complete. Das davon Anfang war, dass wir gehört haben, dass wir gesehen haben mit unseren Augen, dass wir beschaut haben und unsere Hände betastet haben vom Wort des Lebens. Und das Leben ist erschienen und wir haben gesehen und bezeugen und verkündigen euch das Leben, das ewig ist welches war bei dem Vater und ist uns erschienen. Was wir gesehen und gehört haben, das verkündigen wir euch, auf das auch ihr mit uns Gemeinschaft habt. Und unsere Gemeinschaft ist mit dem Vater und mit seinem Sohn Jesus Christus. Und solches schreiben wir euch, auf das eure Freude völlig sei. The word, the word of the Lord. Sehr gut, sehr gut. Huh, I feel like I have to respond to that in a couple ways. One is, today is actually Ron and Gloria's anniversary. So congratulations to you guys. Um, Secondly, as you know, part of our practice is to have various people uh, read scripture from our congregation. And so if you are asked and we don't know that you speak another language, we would love to, to hear that. It's something we've done a couple of times now. We had Victoria reading uh, not that long ago. And I know that there are many that speak a second language. But I'm really curious, are there any, are there any people who actually speak German that understood that? Just a few. Wow. I want, to, I want you to know that like 50 years ago, before TCC existed, since this is a North American Baptist church, our roots are kind of in the German Baptists, every hand would have gone up. In fact, most of the services were still in German at that time. So uh, just, it demonstrates just how much things have changed. Well, it is good to, to be together today. Those of you who are new, I'm Norb. I'm also one of the, the pastors here at uh, TCC. And um, uh, I was thinking about this because like well, many of you come in and you just see this. And you maybe don't get a sense of the lay of the land unless your kids are upstairs. But as you know, there's a kitchen there where the wonderful brunch is being prepared right now in the nursery and the washrooms. And apart from this part, everything else pretty much has a second story. There's a preschool area over here. And during the week, we have a preschool uh, that operates Monday through Friday, a couple days a week for your children. So if you're looking for preschool or you know somebody that is, please 
please tell them about this preschool. We're still accepting registrations uh, beginning in next fall. The area back there above you there, it's called the great room. And right now, all of those grade one to six students that went up, they're meeting there. And every once in a while, you'll hear them get a little rambunctious, the stamping of the feet or whatever. And they were doing a particular song. I think it was during the month of April. And Jenna was like, I promise you, it'll be over at the end of this month because they would stomp their feet so loudly. And we, of course, would all hear it. But then there's a hallway with classrooms. And then right over here is something we call our flex room. And that's usually where the grade five, six uh, kids will, will meet after they've met together with everybody. And so some of you who regularly sit in this corner will know that, hey, every once in a while you can hear what's going on up there as well. So it's fun to just have this building that's so uh, actively used. All behind here kind of is, a, is our office space. And so all of our staff um, have, a, have a space to kind of hang their hat and, and uh, um, spend some of the, the days doing what we do, uh, planning and organizing and connecting with people and all of those things. And my office, if you didn't know this, is the one kind of right in the corner, in the southeast corner there. And I have two windows that uh, look out, one to the south and one to the east. And I used to have my desk set up where I'd look out the window. And it was terrible. Because everything that went by was like, oh, squirrel, oh, bird, you know. And, And it was just so distracting. But one of the things that always caught my attention is when somebody would kind of come out of that south parking lot and just step on it and go whipping by through the parking lot. And I want to just, if, if I was out there, I'd like step out with a shovel or something like that, you know? Because it was just like, listen, there's little kids here. We got a preschool here. The parking lot gets used on a, on a, uh, every morning and, and, uh, and afternoon for the schools over here. Parents pull in, they park, and they walk their kids over to the school to try to avoid all of the traffic congestion over there. So there's always tons of activity in here. And what's funny is, is there's also, I know they're a little worn out, but there's actually directional arrows in which they should go. And, uh, and so it's kind of a one way this way. And so if you're flying that way, you're doing two things wrong. One is you're going against the one way. And two, you're speeding through parking lot with young children present. Don't do that. And, uh, um, and I say that because I think in some ways, um, you know, those parking lot arrows, the, the directions we have, maybe even speed limits. But in this sense, people who just willingly choose to do their own thing. And it just kind of always astonishes me. Either they're oblivious to the rules, maybe they didn't see the arrows, um, or they're just choosing to deliberately ignore them. Now, I think in some ways, actually, that's kind of a metaphor for life. It kind of defines and describes our culture a little bit as well. I find that whenever I read through, like, the book of Judges, it's kind of like, you know, when you read this phrase over and over again, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And sometimes I go, yeah, it sounds like that could be today. Now, I'm in no way a cultural commentator, but I think that we're living and seeking to follow Jesus in very interesting times. We might even say confusing times. You think of all of the changes that have happened in a world. Tina and I were just reflecting on this the other morning, just in the area even of technology. Uh, when I started in ministry, the internet didn't exist. And, um, and can you imagine? It's just like, it's just so different now. We're in smartphones and, and this advent and explosion of like Zoom and kind of online media. The fact that we can live stream this service was something that we didn't even uh, do. There were some churches already doing. Some of the technology existed. But when COVID hit and Every church pretty much in the world in some way was forced to go online to be able to connect with their congregation. 
More recently, you think of uh, some of the things around artificial intelligence, and, I, and I'm just thinking, going, well, you know, so, soon enough, you'll just be able to, you know, tell a computer to write a sermon, and I'll be obsolete, you know, kind of thing, right? So it's, it's changing, and this is the world, this rapid change that we're living in. You layer that on with some of the other things that we've experienced even more recently. You think about COVID, and we talk about, oh, well, we're coming out of COVID, and um, but, but yet when we step back and just think, or you talk to people, you get a sense very much that we will continue, that we are and will continue to see the impact that it had on so many of us. That I don't think that we can ever expect to act like sort of everything is normal again. In fact, if you talk to psychologists and counselors, they'll tell you that many are not doing well. That mental health is a serious concern right now. That there's heightened levels of anxiety. That people and students lived in this painful season of isolation for too long. And then layer on to that, just the experience of grief. So much loss over these last few years. Not just in the passing maybe of loved ones and sort of that physical loss, but I have conversations with people that talk about how much relational loss they've experienced. Where some of the friends that they were once very close to no longer speak to one another, or even within families, divided over politics. You know, it probably wouldn't surprise you that we had people that left TCC because we chose to follow some of the bylaws that were put in place by the levels of government above, like that we would follow. And that was hard. It was a lot of grief and a lot of loss. Then add kind of the explosion of social media over the years. You know, if you're someone who likes Twitter, that's probably my go-to, but it's kind of a hot mess right now, isn't it? Like, it's just crazy how much rage and anger you see about how people interact with one another. And you can take any issue, whether it's politics or climate or the, the war in Ukraine or economics, um, climate change, conspiracy theories, cancel culture, wokeness, all of these issues that we hear so much about, you know, you'll find this fierce debate online. And so any way you look at it, I think we live in very confusing times. You stop and ask yourself, well, what can you believe? Who can you believe? Because people question, right, mainstream media. They think, oh, they've, they've lost objectivity. You question their truthfulness. Have you ever heard as much about censorship as we have in the last year, yet alone the last weeks and months? And with all of this stuff happening in the world around us, I think it's so easy for us to lose focus, to become so confused and distracted and disoriented and overwhelmed. And so in the midst of that cultural moment, what is it that we can be certain of? What can we be certain of? Or how can we keep our mind when our culture seems to be losing theirs? So today we're launching a new series of messages from the book of 1 John. Because I believe this letter speaks to having certainty in confusing times. 1 John is a little letter tucked in the back of your Bible. And so if you're looking for it, and I encourage you if you have your Bible or if you need a hard copy, there's some at the usher's station. You can grab one of those as well. But you start at the back with the book of Revelation, and then in front of that is just a one-chapter book called Jude, and then it's 321 John. And so that's where you'll find this little book. 
And so this morning, what I want to just really do is intro this series that we're going to look at over the next few weeks and months, and in general, the book. And so let me just give you a little bit of background to 1 John itself. Now, the, the letter itself carries the name of the author. This is John the Apostle who wrote it, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And at the time of writing, it said that he was probably at this point now one of the, the, the only surviving disciple. He, in fact, wrote five books. It was the Gospel of John, which we had spent um, much of uh, February, March, and April looking at. And so that was kind of a little bit of the, the foundation that was laid as I was thinking about what is the next series that we should, we should consider. We'd already been in John. And so the, the way that the Gospel of John is written, there's a lot of similarities in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then John also wrote the book of Revelation. And really... Um, What he's doing here, in essence, is answering this question that we all ought to ask is, how should we then live? How should we then live? How do we distill down in the midst of all of the chaos and confusion around us to the essentials? How do we live life in this situation? Now, obviously, he wrote to a very different cultural context, but I believe that there's incredible parallels uh, between what was happening there in the first century AD and what's happening in the 21st century. John himself, when he wrote this, was living in and around Ephesus. He had fled Jerusalem likely in the late 60s AD. Jerusalem itself had fallen to the Romans. It was the temple and the city was destroyed in 70 AD. And this letter was probably written about 80 to 85 AD. Now, what's unique about this letter is that it isn't written to a specific church, but it was more likely circulated among the churches in Asia Minor, of which Ephesus would have been there, which is now modern-day Turkey. And so you can kind of get this graphical image of, of where these churches were. These churches likely at this point now had second and third generation Christians because it was written about 50 to 60 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so maybe just in the passing of time that, that there were some things that started to get a little muddy, some things that became a little bit unclear. And so John writes to address this. And John maps out here for us what I would call three main components of a saving knowledge of God. Okay, The first and foremost and the most important, of course, is just faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to hear that over and over again. Our faith in Jesus Christ is how we experience salvation. That is how we get to know God. But it is through faith. But secondly, he would say that genuine faith, there is evidence for it, and that evidence is an obedient response to God's commands, right? So you can't just have faith in Jesus without living according to, to the teaching of God's word. And then thirdly, some of those commands are a love for God and others from the heart. And so we have this progression. We come to faith in Jesus Christ, and we recognize that, that, that we're not called just, you know, to have eternal life, right? Sort of this insurance policy. But it's in fact that we then live that out in a day-to-day reality of living in obedience to what God lays out in his word. And then we, what he lays out in his word is what we've seen Jesus, right? When he was uh, kind of, you know, pinned against the wall, so to speak, and he says, well, what are the, you know, what is the most important commandment? And Jesus said, well, I'll tell you, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. 
And the second is like it, love others as yourself. And so this letter, in fact, outlines how Jesus expects his followers to honor him in practical church life and wherever he calls his people to go and serve. So it's a very practical letter as well. It's theological for sure, but it's very practical itself. Because the letter itself, uh, it's interesting, it doesn't have a whole lot of structure. It's not that there's a, a certain um, logic to it. It doesn't develop its arguments so, so much, and the subjects sort of bounce around a little bit, which is actually okay. It, it, uh, it, it lends itself well to sort of week-by-week teaching as well. But here's what I think is at the heart of John's uh, letter, is that he wants his readers... Above all, to fall in love with Jesus. He wants them to love God, who is love. This is a God who loves with a profound love, a love that when we experience it and we know it is transformational. And so in a sense, 1 John is very much a love letter from God. And John develops these themes throughout the letter. He talks about God is love and love comes from God. And to know God is to love him and to love God is to love others. And as we study this letter, we'll be deeply challenged, in fact, to love one another with a love that is sacrificial, a love that is costly and also intensely practical. And so naturally... It all comes back to this awesome love of God and the centrality of Jesus Christ. That God sent, that God sent Jesus as an ultimate expression of his love for us. And that love should then propel us not only to love God back, but to love others as well. And in this letter, the object of our love is specifically other followers of Jesus, other believers. And so in many ways, this is a continuation of the theme that we started back in September about doing life together, right? How do we experience church life, this body that he's called us to? How do we then live this out together? And I believe that it is in deeply understanding God's love for us, deeply understanding our identity in Christ, That when everything around us seems uncertain and confusing, that we ultimately then can have a certainty around what really matters. So why then did John write this letter? I've already shared some of the background, but knowing why a letter was written helps us then understand specific parts of it. We might find ourselves reading it a little bit later, and then you kind of have this aha moment. Oh, that, that makes sense now, because uh, this is why he wrote it in the first place. <clears throat> and um, I think John had four main purposes for writing the letter. And any commentary you read are going to have some variations of this. I'm indebted to David Allen, who uh, shared these in his commentary. Number one, to confront false teachers who are beginning to infiltrate the church. So just a couple generations after the death and resurrection of Jesus, there already were some false teachers that were, that were within the church teaching an alternate gospel in some ways. John exposes these false doctrines and ultimately promote, promotes spiritual truth. You see, some people had come in, they were in the church, but they, they were undermining the gospel because ultimately they denied that Jesus had come in the flesh. They denied the fact of the incarnation, God becoming man while remaining fully God. 
So this, of course, was Jesus. And there's evidences to the fact that he's addressing these false teachers spread throughout the letter. And so when you come across some of these references, you'll know, okay, well, that's because he's addressing this problem that was in the church. The second reason he had was an ethical purpose. So John deals with attitudes towards sin and the necessity of love for other Christians. We're confronted with very practical matters of how we then demonstrate our love for others and in reality, how we then would live out our faith. Thirdly, John had a pastoral purpose. You see, his heart was to strengthen Christians, to, to build up the believers, and he wants them to experience this genuine community. He's considerably older now, and so you have this picture emerge of this elderly, fatherly, loving, kind pastor who repeatedly addresses his readers as, you know, dear children. Like, you've got to be quite a bit older to start calling people that are younger than you dear children and dear friends. And so you find throughout it this, this profound sense of love and care that we hear his heart, his pastoral heart for these Christians and therefore for us. And lastly, he also had a personal purpose. Verse 4 of the passage that we read for us, he just explicitly says, we write this, in other words, we write this letter to make our joy complete. To make his joy complete. And when he says our, he's including the other disciples. He's likely including even all the other Christians. Just that our joy would be complete. And how is that possible? Well, later in 3 John verse 4, he writes, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Do you hear that? He says, there's no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. In the truth. And any Christian parent can relate to that sentiment, can't we? That that would be our great joy when our children are walking in the truth. And then we know the heartache when they're not. You see, John's desire was for both sound doctrine, this theological piece, and a vibrant community of faith, this practical piece. And when that describes the life of the church, it, it brings much joy to John because he can step back and just go, they get it. Look at, look at, they're living it out. They know the truth and they live it out. So John's desire for his children was that they would not be led astray by these false teachers that they would not be tossed to and fro by the confusion of their day, but that they would have a deep assurance, a confidence of their faith. And so he writes later in 1 John 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that, here's the reason, you may know that you have eternal life. I'm writing this so that you would know without a shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life. You see, knowing that we have eternal life is the assurance and the certainty that we long for, isn't it? And when we talk about eternal life, it's not just life, you know, in terms of length of life, as in like forever, but it's also a Greek, a Greek term that means quality of life. So our life now. So we could say 
that what John is really desiring for us is that our lives would be marked by this joyful confidence that comes when we know that we are in Christ, loved by God, sons and daughters of God. That is our identity. And when there's so much going on around us, and we can't make sense of all of it, we're not experts in all these things, and, 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 and we, we just need to know this. Come back to this. It's going to be okay. You've got a father who loves you, cares for you. So with that as a bit of a background, let's just look at these first four verses this morning. This is John's opening statement, and it's a very important one. Because what John does here in these first few verses is really just lay the foundation for the rest of the letter. He wants to make it very clear that despite the confusion that these false prophets were creating, that the Christians and the churches in and around Ephesus could absolutely have certainty. That they could have confidence. And this confidence that would be marked by a deep joy. Isn't that ultimately what we long for? When the chaos and confusion is all around us, when we watch the news or scroll through social media, when we can feel our own anxiety increasing, isn't it good to know that we can know? And what is it that we know? Well, in a word and in a person, Jesus. To know that Jesus is real and that we can have a relationship with him. When there is so much we don't know, doesn't it help then ultimately to put our confidence in Jesus? Now that may seem like an escape to some of you or a crutch or just overly simplistic. But really, friends, Jesus is in fact the answer. That when we walk with him, we have the confidence in fact that he goes before us. That that he knows our, our, our next steps and our next days. He knows how this will all play out. And we don't have to fret about it. We don't have to get worked up about it. We can just have this confidence that, you know what? We have a father who knows what's best. And he's looking out for us. And in some ways, he takes all of the chaos and the confusion and all the stuff that's going on in the world. And he uses it for ultimately his purposes and his glory. And I I can't understand that, but I can step back and say, but he's got a purpose. He is in control. I don't have to become unhinged because of it. So that's why John starts his letter with no casual greeting you know the the custom of the day was often to identify who the author was and who he was writing to but he skips all of that and gets right to what is most important and so if you have your bible open you'll see some of these phrases in verse one he says that which was from the beginning if you're somewhat familiar with your bible that sounds very much like the opening of his gospel And then he talks about the word of life. And in verse 2, he talks about the life and the eternal life. And all of these little phrases that he uses there, he never says the word Jesus because he doesn't need to because they describe Jesus. And so Jesus is ultimately the message of 1 John. You see, John's not writing about 
some nice theory. He's, he's not sharing, you know, a dream or a vision that he had. He's writing about a Jesus who really was. And he reminds us and his original readers that there never was a time when Jesus didn't exist. That Jesus was there at the beginning. He existed with God the Father and God the Spirit and was present at creation. And then Jesus took on flesh and lived among us. This mystery called the incarnation. God becoming man while remaining fully God. And then John shares his personal testimony of knowing and walking with Jesus. He says this, he says, listen, I want you to know that. Listen carefully to these phrases that he uses there. If you have your Bible open, you'll see these so clearly. He says, we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, our hands have touched. And John uses these, these verbs of perception. He, he utilizes our senses. He says, we've heard, we have seen, we have touched. And so when he says, I heard him, he's speaking out of his own personal experience. He heard Jesus speak. He heard Jesus teach. He could say, I was there when he gave the Sermon on the Mount. I was there when he calmed the seas with a word. I heard him. He says, I saw him with my own eyes. He saw him, flesh and blood, healing, performing miracles. And he says, I looked at him. And this is just a a little more nuanced than I just seen him. Because the word there actually means that he examined him carefully. The sense that he looked at him intently. How many times did John see and hear what was going on? He goes... Who is this? And he says, I touched him. This wasn't a figment of his imagination. He put his hand on his shoulder. He leaned against his chest in the upper room. When they they saw him on the beach, referenced in John 21, and he came ashore, there, there was probably a hug and an embrace. He touched him. Could there be a more credible witness? And so in making this opening statement, he not only refutes the false teaching that questioned the deity of Jesus, but he speaks to instill confidence in the Christian. Listen, he says, take it from me. Jesus is real. He is as real as the chair that you're sitting in. And he was with God from the very beginning, but he appeared to us. He came to earth, he lived, he died, and he rose again because he and the Father love you to pieces. And John makes it abundantly clear that this is the real Jesus whom he and the other apostles proclaimed. Verse 1, this we proclaim. Verse 2, we proclaim to you. Verse 3, we proclaim to you. In other words, he says, listen everyone, I have something very important to tell you. I heard him, I saw him, I touched him, and now I can't stop talking about him. 
You see, John testified about the real Jesus. And so why was John's testimony so important? Because in these opening verses, he establishes Jesus as fact. In verse 3, we proclaim, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, there it is again, so that, here's the reason again, you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So he speaks to this fellowship with us, fellowship with the Father and with Jesus. This is so much more than just fellow, you know, a fellowship time over donuts and coffee. The root meaning of the word translated fellowship is a deep sharing of things in common. Do you get that? A deep sharing of things in common. And so what really draws followers together is our common faith in Jesus Christ. And a common mission centered around Jesus as well. Now sure, we may, we may have common interests or, fa- or, or, or hobbies or maybe a favorite hockey team, with the exception of one among us. But nothing, nothing is more important than a shared relationship with Jesus, right? That's why you can travel to other parts of the world or the world comes to you. And what ultimately draws us together in deep community is a relationship with Jesus, Why? Because we have this shared salvation experience. You're saved by Jesus, and I'm saved by Jesus, and this is something that we then immediately have this deep bond over. Right? You've probably experienced this. If you, you travel to another country or you've gone to a church, you meet a complete stranger, and you start to talk, and you discover that they also are a follower of Jesus Christ. And almost in an instant, you're like, man, we're connected. I've never met you before, but, but you're my brother and you're my sister. That doesn't happen under anything else. And so there's these two dimensions of fellowship that he references here. There's this horizontal relationship, um, this horizontal fellowship with other believers and this vertical dimension with God. And the point that he's making is that when you are walking with Jesus and I am walking with Jesus, there's this genuine spiritual connection that we ultimately share because of our shared or our common relationship with Jesus. And friends, that's why the Lord's table is so important. Because it's part of our shared experience with Jesus. We call it communion because we eat of the bread and drink of the cup together and the word communion is derived from the latin communio sharing in common and so together we remember and proclaim the lord's death and we give thanks and not just within the context of tcc But any time we have an opportunity to to break bread and drink the cup together with other believers, we're sharing in this common meal that expresses 
our common faith in Jesus Christ. And so now what? Or maybe more appropriately, you're asking, so what? What does it matter? Well, let me give you just a couple of practical applications as I draw this to your close. And, and as I thought about this again, I, I, I don't know if it's just because I always think, know Jesus, walk with Jesus, share Jesus. But I just want to frame the application of this message again in the context of this mission statement that we have at TCC. And so when we talk about knowing Jesus... The encouragement here is that we would know what we believe. That without a shadow of a doubt, we would have a firm conviction about who Jesus is. That we would know that truth and stand firm in it. Because if we're in the truth, then we can be aware of the subtle little deceptions that can creep in. You see, the false teachers of John's day thought that they were like improving Christianity. We're going to make it better. They thought maybe that they were being progressive, but in doing so, they actually unhinged from the truth, denying that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. So here's my challenge to you. Here's your mission, should you choose to accept it. It's not an impossible mission, but I want to invite you to begin in this series to read 1 John every day. Just try it. Read it every day. It'll probably take you 10 minutes, if that. In my Bible, in this one, large print edition, it's, uh, it's literally four sides, two pages. Read it over and over and over and over and over, and you'll start to find that some of the truth that John is declaring here will become embedded in your own mind. Okay? Engage your mind in this, not just your heart. Know the truth. Know the truth about Jesus as John declares it, okay? I'll check in with you next week to see how you did. First John, every day. Know Jesus. Secondly, walk with Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Because when we walk with Jesus, this is when we hear him, when we see his activity in our lives, And while we may not tangibly touch him, we're reading the Gospels maybe and we can can experience what the disciples experienced. We can imagine ourselves being in a boat on a storm-tossed sea and we look in the corner and we see Jesus fast asleep and our first thought is to think, he doesn't even care if we're going to drown. And then to only find that he can come up and with a word say, peace, be still. That's how we hear and see and touch Jesus today. Deepen the fellowship that you have with him. And we do that through the intentional engagement and spiritual practices. Friends, we drum this, we beat this drum all the time. But there's no replacement for silence and solitude. When you find a place where you can push the noise of the world aside for just... A moment in time, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, try to increase that, but just sit in the presence of Jesus and just say, God, I want to hear you. I want to see you. Engage in prayer. 
And we don't walk with Jesus in isolation. We walk with Jesus in the company of others. And so since September, you have heard particularly Pastor Adam, when he did the Life Together series, say, the call to follow Jesus is simultaneously a call to community. And you can't escape that. When we walk with Jesus, we do so in the company of others. And you can experience that in a number of ways. Maybe it's at TCC. Maybe you have just a really good, solid Christian friend. Maybe you experience it in a small group. Maybe you want to consider finding not just your one Christian friend, but maybe a third and form a triad where you can engage in conversation around what is God doing in your life? What is the activity in your life? What is your heart's attitude towards God like today? What temptations are you encountering since we last met together? How is God calling you to change? And as you gauge with these questions in relationship with other believers, all seeking to follow Jesus together, we walk with him. Friends, I invite you again. I feel like the proverbial preaching to the choir, but engage in worship on a regular basis. Gather together with other followers of Jesus because beyond having a shared meal together, we share an expression of faith when we sing together, when we listen to a prayer or we engage in prayer ourselves and we say amen. We are agreeing with that prayer together. And lastly, let's be people who share Jesus. Can I encourage us today to be bold in sharing Jesus with others. And by bold, I don't mean arrogant, and I don't mean offensive, but bold. Don't be afraid to tell people your story. Don't be afraid to share your testimony, to say, I heard him. I saw him. I looked carefully and examined Jesus for who he really is. He is the son of God and he changed my life. He touched me. Testify to how God is working in your life. Friends, dear friends, dear children, I don't think there's a greater witness than when our lives are actually marked by a joyful confidence. We don't get easily rattled. We just have this confident faith in Jesus Christ. We know Jesus. We know the forgiveness of sins. We know all about eternal life, both now in abundance and forever. And despite the chaos and the confusion, we can have this confidence, a joyful confidence, where we, like the Apostle Paul, can declare, as he wrote to to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.12, he says, I know whom I have believed. I know. He says with absolute certainty, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced, I have this confidence that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day.
We either pass away into his presence or he's coming back. Both are going to happen. And we can have this total assurance that that is true. We're going to gather around these tables today. And I pray today that as we each receive these elements individually, we would actually understand it and appreciate it as a common shared experience of our faith in Jesus Christ. That we collectively are pausing to remember his sacrifice on the cross. That we're pausing to say thank you for that sacrifice on the cross. And so I'm going to invite the worship team to come. And the way we're going to do this is these elements are here at the table, up at the front. And so those of you in this section, if you kind of row by row, wait for the row in front of you to go, just move out to your right and come in front of the table and pick up the elements, return back to your seat and hold on to the elements. As you're holding those elements, you can just reflect on on, on who Jesus is. Reflect on the fact that he gave his life for you. Give thanks for that. Spend this time in prayer and reflection. Now, if you find that the songs will help you in that, you're welcome to sing along. But this section here, if you come through this front table, uh, do that. And this section here through this front table, this section here, of course. Those of you at the back, if you just kind of split down the middle, I think that there's, uh, you know, just draw a line down the middle. If you're on that side, come around the back through the doors in front of the table and up the side wall. And if you're on that side of the back, just come around here and come down the side wall and run in front of the table. There's both bread and then the cups of juice. And if you prefer, there's also the prepackaged ones that we've been using for most of the time during COVID. If you'd be more comfortable just grabbing one of those, you're welcome to. But as soon as we start to sing, I'm going to invite you, just come quietly, grab those elements, return to your seats. And let's just spend this time reflecting on the goodness of God and what he's done for us, who Jesus is, and that we can have assurance, this joyful confidence that is ours, even when the world seems out of control around us. So you come, and I'll return, and I'll pray then, and we'll lead together in communion. So hold the elements, and you come.